You're listening to the How and Steve English podcast, a comfy place to talk about all the great and not so great parts of teaching ESL abroad. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Kat Sten. Hello. She is a fellow Hagwon owner. Today, she's going to tell us about how she came to Korea and how she opened up a study room and then went on to open up a Hagwon. So stay tuned. As always, I'd like to remind you about the cool stuff we have going on at houndstevenglish.com. If you go to our blog section, you can find some pretty colorful, fun card games for your kids to practice different types of verb tenses and different vocabulary. Um, right now, I think Hal created some type of present simple game. So if you go over there, you'll be able to find a few different variations of a present simple card game. And with Halloween coming up soon, we'll definitely make something for that. And as always, if you like what you see, join our monthly membership. Uh, it's 10 bucks a month, first month free. Your support lets us make more cool things. All right, Kat, how's it going? It's good. I've had a busy morning, but I'm excited to sit down now. <laughs> great, great. So I guess first things first, um, can you tell us about where you're from and uh, maybe where you went to school and, and what you were doing before you came to Korea? For sure. Well, um, my name is Kat. I have been in Korea for seven years now. I came over in August of 2012. Um, before I came to Korea, I was actually working for Target Corporation. I worked there for nearly a decade. Um, and I kind of uh, fell into human resources when I was at university. So just kind of rolling back the clock. I grew up um, in Massachusetts and I moved to Rockville, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C when I was 10 years old. So I spent my middle school, high school formative years in Rockville, Maryland. And then I went to Hofstra University, which is on Long Island. It's outside of New York City. And I went to university with this idea that I was going to become a music education major. Um, so that was the program I went into was music education I was really involved in music, in drama, in speech. And while I was at university, I fell into radio and communications and actually started working on the radio there. I mean, New York City, it's a perfect place to be on the radio, right? <laughs> um, and then through that exposure to that kind of new world and of course being in New York City, which is just a communication mecca, um, I became more interested in public relations and communications and international relations. So I began to study those things. I switched my major away from education and majored in public relations, actually. But while I was in university, um, I didn't want to starve. So I had a part-time job and I worked at Target. It was just a cashier and guest representative. And um, I actually through my university was made aware of an internship opportunity with Target Corporation with their corporate offices in New York. And I applied. And since I was the only applicant who actually had Target experience, <laughs> um, I was selected for the position. And that was kind of a game changer for my life. Um, it kind of set me on this path towards corporate America and employee relations and internal investigations and all this really cool stuff. And I graduated in 2006 which was before the recession, but it was kind of already a time of turmoil because we were in the midst of the Iraq war and the economy was not uh, as stable as one would like when they're entering the job market. But I walked right out of university and into a job with Target headquarters in Minneapolis. So I moved from New York 
to Minneapolis, worked there for about three years, and then got promoted back to the Washington, D.C. market in an um, internal investigations position. So I did internal investigations. Um, I supported, got a couple hundred stores, seven states, doing the, the heavy hitting stuff, you know, wage and uh, wage violations, harassment, discrimination, those types of things. So I was very good at my job, um, but my job was very emotionally tolling. Um, I was always seeing people's worst sides. And uh, after about five years in that, I decided I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so I switched back over to stores and um, remembered why I fell in love working for Target in the first place and getting to lead my team. Um, and from there, I did overnight logistics. Um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with overnight logistics, but basically making sure all the stuff that comes from the warehouse gets into its proper positions on the shelves before it opens the next day. That's what I did. And uh, my team was anywhere between 50 people to 100 people at Christmas time, but it was hard work. It was awesome. It reconnected me with people from all walks of life. And we would have like the people who were like retired engineers who just wanted something to do with their time. And then we would have the people who had literally just arrived in America and needed to keep, you know, housing over their children. So that experience, I felt like kind of reconnected me with people in general. And I got to see everything, the, the best of times and the worst of times all together. But um I was doing well. I had a great job. We were in the middle of a recession, but I wasn't happy. <laughs> and it sounds so stupid, right? Like, why is happiness important? But it is. It is really important. Um, and you can be doing something that you're really good at and not really enjoying that process. So I decided to quit my very stable job with my good salary and leave all of my life and move to Korea and teach for a year because along the way, I'd left that music education major a decade before, but I'd always maintained like a part of myself for teaching. So when I was employee relations, it was teaching people about our company. It was employee training. I was doing volunteer ESL teaching. I was volunteering at my church to lead youth group. I was very involved in the youth group leadership team. And so there was still an intrinsic part of me that wanted to be teaching. So. I quit. My boss, everything was good. He was like, you know, you come back in a year, we'll have a job for you. No problem. So I had, I owned a house. I owned a car. I had a dog. Um, and I just, I made arrangements and I left all of it and moved to Korea. Plan was to, to go for a year, explore the world, discover myself, or I guess, whatever that means. And then go back to America and figure out what to do from there. But, um, I learned pretty quick after I got here that uh, it was probably going to be more than a year. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Yeah, it's it's a long one. <laughs> well, you're one of the few people, I think, that we've had on here who actually had a big girl job before they came to Korea. Usually it's people fresh out of university come over here. So you've got a really unique journey to come over here. Right. And uh, that was something I had to kind of deal with when I got here as well, because I was new to the scene, but I was already like five to six years older than everybody else who was new to the scene. What was that like? It was okay because I actually fell in 
to a really awesome place. Um, when I was first thinking about coming to Korea, so I knew there was something that needed to change in my life. And I figured the things that I didn't have time for, uh, basically travel especially and teaching especially, I could pursue both of those and still meet my financial requirements if I took a position in Asia. So originally I wanted to go to Italy and teach English, but then I learned that if I wanted to go teach English in Italy, I would basically have to pay for that experience. And I have student loans, so that was not a feasible option. Um, so uh, China, Korea, Japan, those are the options, right? Those are the, those are the positions where you can actually make enough money to make your student loan payments or your car payments back home, whatever you need to do, and still like live a pretty decent life while you're over here. Um, so I, I talked to a bunch of different people. I, I crossed China off because of the air pollution. Um, I, I want to say I'm asthmatic. I haven't had asthmatic problems since I was a child. Um, but even when I visited China just for a weekend, it was like everything came right back. So I'm really glad I crossed China off that list. Although I know from my friends who live in China, there are other places besides Beijing that are very beautiful and have wonderfully clean air. Um, so that was something I didn't know at the time, but I know now. And Japan, it was between Japan and Korea. And I actually uh, have some Japanese American friends and some friends who did the JET program in Japan. And so I t consulted with them about their experiences. And while they had a lot of positive experiences, they also had a lot of negative experiences, mostly with that outsider feeling that they were in Japan, they lived in Japan, they spoke Japanese, but they were always excluded. They always felt like they were on the outside. They never spoke Japanese well enough, or they never looked right for being in Japan. And I didn't want that. And so when I talked to my friends about Korea, they're like, Korea is basically like very similar to Japan, but whereas Japan is business suits and formal attire, Korea is jeans and t-shirts. And I was like, well, jeans and t-shirts, that's where I belong. Um, so I chose Korea. That's a really good choice. I already forgot your original question. Where was I going with that story? <laughs> That's all right. I'll bring up something else. Okay. So you, you left kind of this really interesting life path, this corporate job, because you're unhappy. And I think that's that's kind of something that we always see in movies. And I think it's really interesting when somebody... Um, kind of takes that up themselves that's actually how I kind of came over here too yeah and so oh, go ahead sorry no I was just gonna say I didn't through listening to the podcast I feel like I've gotten to know a little bit more of your backstory and it's really interesting I I think yeah we have uh some some similar cloth here yeah yeah exactly um I ended up here in the far north up near Dongducheon and um I think if I'm not mistaken I'm gonna I always mix up the Gyeongju's and the Junju's and the. I'm down in Mokpo. Where did you end up? Mokpo, that's right, the southern port. Chris was there. Yes, Chris Hinsala, and actually, Chris is one of the first people I knew. So it's funny that you interviewed him because I was like, "How do you know Chris?" And he, you were like, "How do you know Chris?" And I was like, "Chris and I have been friends for like six years." <laughs> yeah, for our listeners out there, um, we interviewed a great teacher out of Mokpo named Chris, who's recently gone on to teach in China and he's just a really great guy he's got a really interesting story and um you can check out the podcast one of our previous podcasts for that and he writes a ton of books and he has a really awesome YouTube channel so check him out on YouTube yeah uh, listen and learn English I think 
So that was what you asked. You said, how was it when I came over here and I was yeah. older? And actually, when I wanted to come to Korea, I had pushed, I found a recruiter because everybody's like, you can't go to Korea without a recruiter. So I found a recruiter and I was pushing for Seoul. And I learned after the fact, everybody pushes for Seoul, right? But it was what seemed most comfortable, like coming from America to a country I've never even visited. I want to go someplace where there's some familiarity, right? And my recruiter was like, mm, how about Mokpo? And I was like, Mokpo, where's Mokpo? And he was like, well, it's on the southernmost tip of Korea, very, very far away from Seoul in the Jolanomdo province. And I was like, wow, that's not Seoul at all. Um, but it small world. So I told you I was really involved at my church. And my mom was in church choir with this Korean-American woman. And she just mentioned my daughter got a job offer in Mokpo. And her, her choir friend was like, no way. My best friend's family lives there. And so smallest of worlds, it just felt like all the signs were there. Like literally the church, God is involved in this decision. I'm supposed to go to Mokpo. So I told my recruiter like, okay, I'll go to Mokpo. And I went and I think because I was going to this like strange new world that nobody speaks English down here. Like it is, it is as Korean as Korean can get. And I showed up here, but immediately I already had like a family. Like I had this Korean family that had no association with any of my work. It was just there ready to take me out to dinner and show me around the city. I walked into a hagwon job that already had three other, four other foreign teachers. So I wasn't alone. And then I walked into this community where there's a lot of young people, but also there's a lot of people like Chris, like me. Um, people who just decided we're going to leave our cushy jobs in America um, or we can't find cushy jobs in America. So we're going to come to Korea, even though we're already 28, 29, 30 years old. So I, I found immediately a sense of community um, that is exactly what I needed. That's really great. And, and so you were down there for how many years just as a teacher? Well, I've never left here. So I've been here for seven years. Um, I worked in Hagwans for the first six, five of those years, I would say, because my school has been open just over two years. I've been out on my own. So yeah, for about five years, I was here as a teacher. But um, well, kind of what happened, what I didn't expect is after, shortly after I arrived, I met somebody and we started dating and we ended up getting married and having children <laughs> and he's Korean. So um, I only worked in my first hagwon for about two years until the birth of my son. Okay. So I think one of the things that we're really excited to talk about is just the process of going out and becoming an entrepreneur in a different country. And that was kind of what you did and what I think we both did around the same time, actually. So you went on to open a study room in the Hagwon. What was that process like? How, how long were you living in Mokpo before you decided, you know what, I'm going to open a study room? Well, it was definitely not something that I entered into lightly. Um, I worked about five years in, so I worked for those first two years at the Hagwon on an E2 visa. 
But after I was married, I switched over to what's known in Korea as an F6 visa, which is basically a marriage visa. And the critical difference is that when you're on an E2 teacher visa, your hagwon basically like owns you. They own where you can work. They own what hours you can work. And you know how much you get paid is dependent on your contract. But you're contracted to a single school. But when you're on a marriage migrant visa, on an F6 visa, then you control your schedule. So um, after two years, well, my, my first son was born almost two months prematurely. He was born seven weeks premature. So I spent the first year after he was born taking some part-time work, but mostly just focusing on my son. Um, and then when he was about a year old, that's when I started going back to work more regularly. Um, I spent the next three years, I worked at over nine different institutes. I worked at a public school, I worked at the English library, and I worked at kinder kindergarten hagwons, library hagwons, generic run-of-the-mill English language hagwons, um, hagwons with adult classes, hagwons with middle schoolers, elementary school, kindergartners. So the first few years, I just really got a ton of exposure and input regarding this process. And as I told you, I, I was an education major way back in the day, but I'm not a trained teacher. So I used that time to receive a lot of guidance and just kind of accept the teachings and the ways things were. But on the sidelines, I was doing a lot of academic research on my own. Um, getting, I, I got my TESOL certification, of course. I got Young Learners Extension, Business Learners Extensions. And then beyond that, I was interested in pursuing a master's degree, but didn't really have um, the time or funds um, with, with two babies and work to do that. But I connected myself with people who were doing it. And I would talk to them about what they were studying, what books they were reading, what articles they found interesting. Um, so I started doing more research on the language, the, the science of language acquisition, um, particularly as it relates to young learners. And I just realized um, there was a lot that the research said we should be doing that wasn't being done in these hagwon jobs where I was working. Um, and if I suggested a different way of approaching something or implementing something else, a lot of times I was just shut down. It's like, no, that's not how we do it here. No, do it this way. Do it our way. Like, but your way is scientifically proven to be ineffective. Just do it our way. It works. And I grew really frustrated with that um, because I felt like we were doing a disservice to our students to continue teaching them using outdated methodologies that had been proven to be less effective than others. So I finally like had like one of those last straw conversations where I was like, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to keep working for other people when I know I could do it on my own and do it better. So I quit my job. I took like a month to op to like open the study room, build the study room, I guess, like decorate it, get my curriculum in order, start doing sung uh, dams, which means consultations, like get student interest. And the process of registering the study room was actually really easy. I just had to go to our local Ministry of Education and say, I want to open a study room. And they came, they checked out my space. They were like, okay, you're good to go. And I had my registration. <laughs> it was super simple, especially compared to the Hagwon process I went through later. <laughs>
Yeah, the hagwon process is a really, really big headache. But there was something that you said there before we move on that I'm really uh, interested in expanding for the listeners. You were mentioning about all the techniques that you were using and all the different curriculum you were using when you were an employee somewhere. And maybe what the other teachers were using as well and how it just wasn't an effective way to teach. And for teachers at Hagwons, I think unless they work at so many different Hagwons like we have, they don't really see so many different like franchise techniques. You know, everyone's got their own McDonald's. Everyone's got their Whopper and their Big Mac technique, mm-hmm. it seems, at these different academies. Does anything really stand out in your memory as kind of just like weird and ineffective and kind of lazy ways to teach? I mean, I think the biggest one that hits me is just the the emphasis on rote memorization and repeating back something that's been memorized rather than learning something and knowing it. Um, so I think in the Korean education system, there are so many places that just have kids memorize. And then when you go to actually check whether they have like the knowledge that like the skills that they should have acquired, you know, to produce whatever they're producing, whether it's a speech or whether it's an essay or whatever, when you go to like point check those foundational skills that should be used in order to create whatever they've presented, they're absent because they haven't actually learned any skills. They've just been told what to say and how to say it and memorized how to do so. And I think that's, um, that's, hugely unfair to our kids, to our students, because they are completely capable of learning those foundational skills. And they should have those foundational skills so that they can grow their language acquisition ability, you know, later and even by themselves if they want, when there's nobody telling them exactly what to say. Because if they have the foundational knowledge, they can improve upon it. But a lot of these schools, they just, you know, they read a storybook for a month. And then at the end of the month, the kids can can say the storybook without looking at it. Congratulations. They didn't read it. They memorized it. And then they'll memorize these like the weekly spelling tests or weekly vocab tests. Can you translate 60 vocab words in under two minutes or whatever? And oh, you you missed five of them. Now you have to write all 60 of them 10 times. Like, is that really effective? Like, does that create long lasting vocabulary awareness because you wrote 600 words in a 30 minute period yeah now you're going to remember those 60 words no you're not you're going to have to do another 60 word test tomorrow or not tomorrow but like the day after and I just think like I would get these kids coming in and they'd show me their vocab books that they'd studied and then I'd try and be like okay well can you use this word in a sentence and they wouldn't know what that word meant because they'd only memorize the Korean definition of it and I just like, I was just like, wow, like this is not helping them. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. I think that's kind of something that teachers probably are aware of, but especially some of the new teachers don't really know too much about. It's just rote memorization is kind of the basis for a lot of education, even in math academies and science academies and social studies academies here in Korea. They just spend a lot of time memorizing text regurgitating it onto a test and then onto the next test and everything's forgotten. But like the deeper level of complication with that methodology is the anxiety it induces. 
So these kids come in and they're kind of excited. You know, English is like this exotic language. They don't know anything about it, but they hear it all the time. They want to learn how to read. They want to learn how to use it. They want to learn how to speak English. But then they go into one of these um, schools that's using these rote memorization techniques or this like punishment technique of if you miss so many, you know, here's the consequence. And then they just, it just drains the the enjoyment out of the process. So you get these kids, by the time they get to middle school, like, sure, they can write an essay in English, they can talk to you and have a conversation, but they literally resent English. They resent the language for the stress and anxiety it has created within them. And these kids come and they have such these beautiful imaginations. They make up the funniest stories. And, you know, usually someone always dies. But... <laughs> But they have these like great imaginations and then you just watch that through the years like from first grade to middle school and it's like that that imagination is just sapped out of them to the point where you ask them to write a creative story and they're like I can't I have no more I can't tell me what to write and I'll write it like no I don't want to tell you what to write I want you to put your thoughts on the paper and it's like they were so good at it when they were eight, but now they're 14 and they can't do it because they've never, they haven't been able to keep practicing that skill. They haven't been able to grow that skill. And, and what's more to the fact is they've been discouraged from doing so um, through the methodologies used. So it's just like, it's like a two part, like punch to the stomach, right? Not only is the methodology wrong, but it's literally like sapping the, the higher level thinking skills out of our children. <laughs> Those are really, really, really great points. And I think any teacher in an academy can really relate to that. And so you just are one of the people that took it upon yourself to fix it. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So you end up at this study room and you said it was really easy to open with the government at least, but it must've been really difficult to decide your curriculum and which days of the week and the hours, because that's, stuff that comes with the territory that people don't realize is super stressful. Well, and I'd already been working at so many different schools. So I'd been able to kind of use that, that time to uh, preview different curriculums. I got to see how a lot of different operators operate and what materials they use. So I had some ideas about what kind of materials I wanted to use. I'd also been teaching private lessons where I was traveling around to people's houses. And those were Sometimes I would use textbooks, but a lot of parents, when you do that, they don't want you to use textbooks. They want you to create the lessons. So I already had like a pretty good starting library of lessons I wanted to I wanted to use, materials I was using with private students. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to open my study room is because I spent a lot of time on the road, driving from one academy to the other, driving from one person's house to the other. And I just felt like I wasn't using my time effectively. But if I opened a study room, then I would have a central location. I go there every day and the students come to me. So I would be able to teach more classes, teach more students and still be home earlier to spend time with my kids. So it was a, a good place for work life balance in my um, that was kind of where I was looking at it. As far as curriculum decisions, there was a lot of pressure to choose the right curriculum from the beginning. So I not only like evaluated in my head all the multiple phonics programs I'd used at different academies, but I knew that I didn't really like any of them as much as I wanted to like the curriculum I was going to use. 
So I kept searching. Um, I searched online for recommendations and I went to my bookstore and I just looked through literally every single phonics book they had. And I ended up picking the one that we use and then I built a supplemental curriculum around that book um, to really hit all of the points I wanted to hit during phonics instruction. And I opened with either phonics classes or like high level speaking classes because it was a transition from private lessons. And most of my private lessons were higher level students or students who wanted to be higher level, but my focus was on speaking. And I'd already been told at multiple hagwans, my purpose as the native speaker there is to look good for parents and to have fun with the students. But it was clear that none of the students' success was being attributed to my efforts. And as somebody with an intrinsic desire to create success, that was like stab in the back, you know? That was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. One of my directors said to me, like, it's nice that you have all these ideas for teaching, but can you just please have fun with the kids? And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, no, we're done here. <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah. So when my, when I told my friends, I have a lot of Korean friends. And when I told them I was going to open a study room, there was already interest. Like my friends and their friends, they had wanted me to teach their kids, but the times just hadn't matched because I'd already had all these other lesson commitments. But a lot of my private lessons, like, didn't transition to my study room. So I found myself with all these open slots. Um, and yeah, I started, I opened my study room with eight students. Um, I opened at the wrong time. I opened, <laughs> I opened in July, which is not a good time to open a study room. If you're counting, um, you should open your study room shortly before the semester begins, not in the middle of summer vacation. Cause most people don't want to go to an academy over summer vacation. Wow, yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a scary thing to open up and everybody's away and everybody's not willing to commit to that one month because they're taking a two-week vacation. Well, and it's a huge, like, it was a huge thing because, like, remember, Mokpo is Korean. There are a couple hundred foreigners here, but most of them are native English speakers or they're not English-speaking foreigners. They're dock workers, they're migrants, they're other people who are working within Korea. So for these parents to take the leap and say, I'm going to entrust my child's entire English education to this foreigner who doesn't speak Korean, that took a huge amount of trust on their part. Them to say, like, the system that it currently is is not working, but I think this one's going to work for my child. Um, and I'm really grateful that they gave that trust to me. And um, even still here today, I still have, I'd say, I, like I said, I opened with eight I have half of them still, and the half that I have are in my top class. Like, they have really excelled. So, you opened in July of 2017? Is that, Is that right? it? 2017? Yes. Yes, it was July 2017. Because my, uh, my second baby was born February 2016. So, he was about 18 months when I opened this, my school. What is it like to have young children and to run a study room at the same time? Well, it's hard, but it's not. Um, because Korea has such great social systems. Um, so my kids go to daycare and that's fully subsidized by the government. And our daycare is open until 9 p.m. So from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., like if my kids needed to be in daycare, they could. 
And since I was running a study room with afternoon hours, it would mean I would just spend my mornings with my kids and then I would put them in daycare before lunch and then I would pick them up. My classes ended at the study room at 7 p.m. and then I would pick them up at 7 p.m. and then we would go home and spend the evening together. So having those daycare systems in place was critical to me being able to run my business and not worry about who's taking care of my kids at the time. Um, also because it was small, um, it felt more like a family. I had really close relationships with the parents. So if my kid was sick and he couldn't go to daycare that day, he just came to the study room with me. And the study room was like, you know, we had a room that we studied in, but we had another room too that was just like for relaxing, for reading, for using the computer. So my kid could just hang out and be sick in the other room while I taught all my classes. Um, which I couldn't do if I worked at a hogwan. Like you can't really bring your sick kid to work with you. But when you own the school, you can. There are all these different expectations that moms have with different types of education businesses. So when you're a private tutor, like you said, you couldn't really bring many of your private classes over to your new group classes because it's hard to change that expectation that they have. And I assume going from the study room to the hogwan that you later created also had some difficulties in changing the expectations with the parents but with the study room itself you mentioned you could keep your kid there with you when they're sick there's there's a lot of leeway there's there's a lot of a lot less of a professional expectation i guess from the moms or a lot less you know policies and systems and whatever that the moms would expect as far as like being able to have your kid obviously he's sick he can wait at home for this day like i don't think i could really do that at my academy well, I think my parents would be upset. <laughs> and I let me tell you, so study room is is a home-based business, right? But I was operating my study room. I basically had like two homes. We had like our main apartment, which is actually owned by my parents-in-law, but we don't live with them, but it, they own that apartment. Um and then I I rented a second apartment, a, a two-room apartment, and that became like my second home basically. Um, so I had the one room set up for studying, but I had the other room set up for living. Like we had bed stuff in there. We had all of our bathroom stuff. Like we had clothes in there. So that's the whole point of a study room is that it is a home-based business. And so when I opened my study room, I kind of created like this second home. Um, there's a lot that I I can't really get into publicly, but it was like it was a huge time of transition for my family. Um, so I actually opened my study room while my husband was living abroad in Australia. Um so in October of 2016, my husband um enrolled at a university in Australia and he moved abroad. So I was living in Korea with my two babies and a lot of support from my parents-in-law, my sister-in-law to help me manage all this these classes that I had cuz I was working weekends too, all these private classes and just trying to to keep everything together and keep my family together and keep my house clean and it was just kind of overwhelming so that's so difficult i uh, i opened the study room when he was not even here i did there was no <laughs> i told him i was thinking about it and he was like all right well if it's what you want to do then do it <laughs> and so i did but he didn't come back until 2018 so when i opened my study room like it wasn't like i could hand the kids off to my husband in the evening cuz my husband was like a 12 hour plane plane ride away he was in australia um 
So yeah, it was important for me that at that time in my life, I needed to streamline, I needed to prioritize, and I needed to make my kids more of a priority. So the study room allowed me to do that. So at that study room, um, could you tell us about some of the advantages of running the study room when it comes to the expectations the parents have? Because for for me, and I think maybe for people want deciding between study room and an academy, a lot of it has to do with, like you said, work-life balance with what type of lifestyle you want to make. And a hagwon can be extremely stressful. And there are so many benefits, I think, to running a study room. Well, I think, um, yes, I, I think a study room can also be extremely stressful um study room okay so what you said is like parents don't have that same level of professionalism but i do think they have they have a high level of professionalism what they don't have is that same level of polish that they expect from a hug one so a hug one should be more polished than a study room because a study room is in somebody's home so they expect it to have that homey feel um other like challenges uh unique characteristics of a study room uh, parents expect small classes. They expect a lot of individual attention, um, but they expect all of that to come at a lower price than they would pay for a hagwon. And that's kind of one of those things that's like, whether you run a study room or whether you run a hagwon, the office, the Ministry of Education sets the prices you're allowed to charge per minute. And those are exactly the same for a hagwon and a study room. So I could only charge so much tuition, regardless of what kind of operation I had. But the expectation for parents was that I have smaller classes and cheaper rates at a study room, which is basically saying that my salary should be lower than if I work at a than if I run a hogwan. And I don't think that's uh I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's a problem with the Gyokjung. I think it was just managing parent expectations. And initially because I was new off the ground, I needed their trust. So I I provided those conditions like you know, pretty low rates, small class sizes, a lot of individualized instruction. But as I grew my curriculum and as I grew my student base, I also raised my prices and I also raised my class sizes. And I would get pushback from the parents when I did that sometimes. But like, it's not just, this is not a hobby. This is my business. This is my livelihood. So I think sometimes you have to kind of challenge and manage parent expectations. And sometimes at the beginning, you have to kind of give them what they want to get them in the door. But once they're in the door and once they see what you're doing and, and how effective you are, I think you can demand a fair price for what you're what you're delivering. I think one of the things that many people fail at, if there are any uh, study room owners or, or academy owners listening, is changing the terms of an ongoing relationship with parents so when it does come time to increase the price you know we we often see at least in the high one startup group you know owners filled with a lot of doubt and a lot of worry when it comes time to reduce the hours or change the way the hours are there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of worry and i think rightfully so because the parents in my experience and i think in the experience of others whenever you change the terms it's really hard to make everybody happy. Somebody's just going to be upset that the terms have changed, that the relationship has been changed, and you'll get some um, some turnover from the parents. Do you have any tips or any tricks? You're like, how do you best handle that scenario? Oh, that is a fantastic question. <laughs> so um, I would never raise prices without a reason to raise prices. 
So I wouldn't raise prices just because, you know, the cost of living's increased. No, I would adjust my program. So when I created a library, then I adjusted prices because now not only are I doing this, but there's a library as well. When I added online content, online platforms, there was that additional cost for the online platforms. So that affected tuition as well. And my pricing structure is all inclusive. So when students pay our monthly tuition, all of that materials, their online, their online supplemental curriculum, all of their books, everything they use at the school is included in that price. And so I was always able to justify my tuition increases with an increase in the level of service that I was providing. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Usually you have to increase hours, increase you know the the self-study time increase something right you gotta price. you gotta give something um, but it doesn't have to be like an exact one-to-one ratio so for example the online learning platform that I use it costs me a hundred dollars a year to use it that's a flat fee that I charge no matter if I have five students on it or 30 students on it but that doesn't doesn't like parents don't have to know my materials cost um, and that is just like one quantifiable cost. This is the reason why I do all-inclusive pricing because that online system is $100. And then another online system that I use to create the supplemental materials is $180. And then I'm also getting resources from this website that I had to pay $14.95 to get this ebook. And so if I was trying to piecemeal charge people for that, it would get really complicated and it would be ridiculous. So I can just look after running the the study room for a year, I can look at, okay, how much did I spend this year on re- on resource acquisition and materials? Okay. So that cost me this much. So I'm going to and I spent, you know, how many hours combing through all of this to get it to. So our time is not free, right? So when you calculate those numbers, then you come up with a figure that seems fair. Like I'm not trying to gouge anybody. But I do want to be paid for the work that I do, and I don't want to give away things that people should be paying for. So, um, and as you said earlier, you know, you open the business and you're kind of you're nervous, you're scared, you're trying to build up your customer base, and so you undervalue yourself. Yep. And at some point, you realize, well, not only am I undervaluing myself, it seems like everybody else in this market who's using just rote memorization kind of like a fraudulent technique almost to kind of use that and claim that you're producing speaking results is charging a lot more than you. Yeah. So it's it's only right, I think, after a while to increase prices. It's just navigating that tricky water, like you said, giving more. You have to find resources, like objective things that they can look at and say, oh, okay, I understand. Right. And, and showing that and being transparent with that process. I think that was important for my parents too. So I would send out a monthly newsletter. I would talk about what we were doing in class. I'd talk about where we were in the curriculum. I'd also talk about like if I had to cancel classes one day because I was attending a professional development seminar or because I was giving a presentation, I would keep all of that transparent so that parents would recognize that not only am I focused on providing their child with this high quality education, but I'm focused on making myself the best teacher to provide that quality of education. And so when you opened this study room, you said you had the, you hit your last straw, you broke your back on the fact that 
They just wanted you to have fun in class and they refused to do anything except um, stick to the showy type of English education, like memorizing books and memorizing speeches and showing moms, oop, this kid knows English when, you know, really they didn't. Were you able to achieve that? Were you able to uh, build a school and build an academy in your apartment that was able to kind of fight the system? Yeah, I mean... I built this school and I taught kids who didn't know their ABCs. I taught them ABCs and how to read. And and for the first time in Korea, I was able to say, this is 100% because of me. This is not because they have a Korean teacher that's teaching them from a book five days a week and playing games with me once a week. They are learning this because of me. They're learning these foundational reading skills because of this curriculum that I have designed. And parents could see the changes in their children and that the kids were excited to come to school because we had fun doing it. Like we did play games and we did do crafts and activities and we did make stories while we were using our books at the same time. So my curriculum now versus at, a, at the hog one versus where I was at the study room, I was definitely a little bit more lax. It was a little slower when I was at the study room, but the overall content of the curriculum hasn't changed. Um, and it's still focused on kids learning English and enjoying the process. Um, so word spread. Uh, I, op- I told you I opened in July. My low point was like probably October, November. I was like feeling really low. I was barely making my expenses. I wasn't making any money. I was worried about like maxing out my credit cards because I didn't have any money coming in um, or not enough to cover my expenses. And then... Then December hit and, you know, the new semester starts in March. But it was like after midterms finished in October, all of a sudden I got this flood of sangdams and my business just took off from there. So you had eight in July and I guess after about a year, how many students did you have? I had 40 students after a year. And And for listeners, that's massive. That's like the dream of a study room owner, at least for me. If I I want to open a study room and I want 40 students. (laughs) 40 students was a good number. But I also, it it sounds higher than it is because I had had tracked classes. So I had Monday, Wednesday, Friday tracks and Tuesday, Thursday tracks. And so there were different kids. So like if I had had only Monday to Friday students, I would have maxed out at 36. But 40 was still a solid number. I had, I had butts in seats. It was good. Life was good. I was making money. I was stressed to the gills because 40 kids is not that bad to teach. But when it's 40 kids, you're teaching all the lessons, you're planning all the lessons, you're managing all the parent communications, you're planning for the future. Parent communications was like the hardest part of my job. I had hired a translator, um, to help me so I would basically send her like my monthly newsletter in English and she would translate it into Korean I would send it out to the parents but just like those daily check-in messages even something like you know my son has a piano recital this weekend so he won't be in class on Friday like I would see that text message and I could kind of understand it but you don't want to just kind of understand things when it's your business you want to make sure you 100% understand them so I, at that point, I was like, I cannot maintain this level of Korean communications with my level of Korean. It's not possible. So I, uh, I, I was taking Korean lessons at the time and I had that translator, but 
Um, yeah, I took uh, a year after I opened my study room. So I had 40 kids in my study room and I had like this 18 kid wait list. I didn't even have classes for these kids, but these parents wanted to study with me. And I was taking seven weeks off to go home to America for my sister's wedding. And for anyone who's done this before, this is a huge leap of faith. You leave for a long time. You usually come back and you start back from ground zero. And I was like, it's my sister's wedding. You know, YOLO. You only got one life to live. I'm going home. And if I come back and I have to start over again, then I have to start over again. Um, but that's not what happened. I came back of those 40 students, 35 returned and I'd created a new schedule, a new pricing structure, new classes. And I was able to get all of those waitlist kids in too. So I came back and opened with actually 55 students. Um, and at that point I hired help. <laughs> so what do you think were the biggest obstacles? Cause I think maybe we share them which is the communication with the parents because there's so much going on there there's, there's worrying about oh is my kid making any progress because you guys do so much speaking and i can't see their speaking skills or um oh he's doing so much reading but your wannamean hagwan your native speaker hagwan was speaking skills there's a lot that can go on with the parents there's a lot that can go on with just scheduling uh what do you think were the big headaches for you or the big obstacles i guess in your business honestly the curriculum was not the issue the interpersonal relationships were the issue and so this is something that you deal with more at a study room than you do with a hogwan but like kids who are best friends on tuesday are enemies by friday they don't want to sit next to each other they don't want to be in the same class i had a lot of a lot of situations where like a kid would be pinched by another kid and I didn't know about it. But then the parents are called like messaging me later saying that this kid pinched their kid and what am I going to do about it? And it's just like, oh, so the curriculum was never the issue. Making sure I mean, I mean, like keeping up was challenging, like making sure I was making monthly contact with every parent was a challenge because I didn't want when parents feel neglected, they leave. So you got to remember, it's a business where we're teaching children, but your customers are their parents. So I could have the best relationships in the world with the kids. If the parents aren't seeing that or aren't hearing about it, they're going to think the worst and they're going to leave. So I felt kind of in that way I was doing double duty because I was like giving 100% of myself to these kids that I'm teaching. But then I had to turn around and also like communicate everything that we were doing with the parents, um, which is fine when you have 18 or 20 but when you have 55, that's a huge responsibility. I would literally spend like hours a day on communication, especially because it's not my native language. So I would have to like go back and forth with the translation. <laughs> like, how do I say this? You know, in English, I, I studied public relations, nuance of language. It's important. It's important in Korea too. I just can't do it in Korean. So I had to outsource that. And then when I outsourced it, I had to double check my translator's work because my, my ability to read Korean is superior to my ability to speak Korean um, but make sure I was like reading the message they were writing and being like yeah that's an, I don't want to use that word is there another word we can use instead of that that's not exactly the tone I'm meaning so like everything is going through filters of of, uh, of understanding and um, so to get my message to the parents and the parents message to me there was always a filter sometimes two layers of filter and that was just time-consuming um, yeah those are really great points. And I think anybody who's listening who owns a study room or an academy can relate, can really commiserate with you. 
and us. And I think anybody thinking about owning a study room, um, even if you do have the help of your spouse, which is huge, like your spouse is basically going to be like Superman opening up doors for you. Um, but if even with your spouse, it's hard, it's stressful. Like you said, a kid can pinch another kid because that's what kids do. And yeah, you, you, you'll say, oh, that's that's just kids being kids. But then when that mom quits and takes two of her friends with her, then for the rest of the time owning the business, you're going to look at the kids and any tiny problem, you're just going to freak out because they actually could quit. They could leave your academy as great as it is because, well, something stupid happened. Well, yeah, I actually I had like I, I bought a home cam system because I had a situation between students where one, a boy student accused a girl student of watching him go to the bathroom or like opening the door while he was going to the bathroom and like made a big deal out of it. And this girl, I was like, are you sure? Like we're talking about the same girl? Cause she was like the sweetest, shyest girl, like non-aggressive completely. If she's having a disagreement with somebody, she sits in the corner and cries about it, you know? And he was like, no, she did it. And I was like, Okay, I called the moms in. We had like a conference, both moms, me, the two kids. And it comes up that the boy lied. Like he admits <laughs> that he lied. But you know what? His mom messaged me that night and asked me to apologize to her son for insinuating that he lied. I said, I didn't, I didn't insinuate. He lied. <laughs> but that was the mentality. It was like that, that, that mentality of like, you accused my son of being a liar. Well, yep. He was a liar. And I also told him that, you know, he lied. It's okay. We, we all know the truth now. It's important to be honest and truth worthy. It's okay. People make mistakes. I say that's like, that's like the, one of the foundations of my school is it's okay to make mistakes. We all make mistakes, right? We're here to learn and grow. Um, but I would not apologize to her kid. And so I kept, I kept the one mom, uh, daughter still with me, sweet as pie, doing fantastic. But I never saw that boy, like, I, he, he quit shortly after. And it was one of those things where it was like, I felt like sometimes you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. And in those situations, you just have to ask yourself, did I act with integrity? Did I remain true to myself? Do I regret anything that I said or did? And if I answer yes, yes, and no in that order, <laughs> then it is what it is and you can't change it. That's a really, really great way of looking at it. I think that's probably something that these different owners need to think about whenever they're in the midst of crazy, crazy relationship issues with the students and the parents and just anything else at the academy because there's so many different things going on. You've got a different culture. You've got a different language. You've got generational difference, maybe. We were raised by people who were born, or I was, I was raised by people born in the 50s. Um, these children are raised by people born in... I don't know, the 90s. Yeah. Or people, so, they're, they're, their parents are my age. They're like 35s, 40s. So we're, we're 70s and 80s babies. Well, for me, I'm also, like, I already see myself. Like, I'm, I used to make fun of my kids and their parents are spoiling them. And now I'm a new dad and I'm, I'm pretty horrible. I'm so, I spoiled a kid <laughs> way too much. He wrapped around the finger. Yeah, so I, I get it. It's it's weird and it's difficult. And you just got to stay sane in the midst of that, like you said. Yeah, I think one of the things I've learned, like my lesson this summer. So, you know, summer is really hard, right? It's hard when you run a study room, but when you run a study room, it's just you, right? So your, your, your take home takes a hit. 
But when you run a Hagwon, and we didn't really have time to get into this, but you know, I upgraded to Hagwon this year. It was a big decision, but running 55 kids in a study room was not really sustainable. So it was either scale back and teach teach fewer kids or scale up and teach more. And um, scale back didn't seem fair to the kids because they were all doing well. They're succeeding in the program. So why am I going to say like, oh, sorry, I can't keep teaching you just because it's too much for me. No, like I can handle it. I just needed a new situation. And so we scaled up. Um, we're up to about 70 kids now at the Hogwan. And I have a Korean teacher. I have a bus driver. I have, um, well, two Korean teachers. One is my English center's teacher and one is like a classroom teacher like me. And I, I teach in the classroom as well. And yeah, when uh, you get hit with those August blues, those summer break, winter break blues, it's not just your paycheck anymore. It's your payroll. And you cannot miss your payroll. You do not give IOUs to your teachers. So you need to plan and be prepared. And I was, but when it happened, oh, it still hurt. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's uh, it's rough. And there's... Yeah, you mentioned we aren't able to get into the Hogwan talk because I ramble a lot on the podcast and I take us on a lot of left turns and right turns. No, I've talked but a lot, so. <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed your story. There's so many, so many more questions I could have asked, especially about your time at Target and um, all the different routes and different, different things you did before you came to Korea and then you came when you came here. You did so many interesting things as well. Well, and how uh, how I've conducted myself in Korea has been very much shaped by the amazing leadership that I had when I worked at Target. I worked for some incredible people, like, and they're still like, you know, super successful leaders of their field. But I also worked for a company, for Target, a company that fosters and promotes like team development and individual development and really has that corporate culture of we all make mistakes. You just want to be a better version of you today than you were yesterday. And like, nobody's an expert overnight. Like those kind of ideas were really like, I, I got those concepts, internalized them through my time with Target. And now I'm turning around and like taking those ideas and trying to share them with the kids, trying to like inoculate them against <laughs> this aspect of Korean society that says you have to be perfect 100% of the time from day one. And I'm like, you don't. That's not reality. So just be your best version of yourself today and try and be a better version of that person tomorrow. Like our school is, uh, it has a lot of, uh, I don't know, I don't know the right word to say it, but it's not just about English education here. It's about forming minds and molding leaders. So I want the kids to have a strong sense of self and to be confident and to be comfortable with who they are and to feel safe in this space because when those things happen then they they grow they accelerate their their language acquisition is just like astronomical the speed that they are able to achieve it when they don't feel when they don't hold themselves back i think that's really inspirational i think we can just hope to have academies and study rooms similar to that thank you for um for, for our uh, aspiring teachers, aspiring study room owners, and aspiring academy owners out there, do you have any last bit of uh, advice you can impart on them? Um, prioritize yourself because no one else will. 
So like during the, the break period, as I mentioned, so everybody's talking to me about their, their family vacation and can their kid get some makeup classes. And um, when I was going, uh, I was taking a break for like two weeks. Um, this is when I had my study room. And one parent said to me like, but what about my son's class? I said, what about your son's class? I'm on vacation. We'll have class again when I get back. And when I opened the hog one, I had this idea that like I couldn't take that attitude because like legally I'm required to teach so many hours, so many months, or I have to adjust my prices, blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't get a break this summer because I was so busy worrying about everyone else's breaks. And I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm human too. My team's human too. And if you're going to take your family on a one-week vacation, then we're going to take a one-week vacation and spend time with our families too. And I think that there's always going to be people who can't understand that you need to look out for yourself. Um, but I think as long as you understand that and you're like, there are, you understand that and know that there are plenty of people who do understand that. There are plenty of parents who are like, take the week off, enjoy your vacation. We'll see you when you get back. So even though there's some squeaky wheels that might be a little bit, give you some opposition, like, don't worry about them. Focus on yourself because nobody else is going to consider you. So you have to consider yourself. That's really, really important advice. That actually hits home for me too because I'm always scared about taking vacation, scared about going home to the United States, scared about going here or there. But really, you, you, you're responsible for your own vacation. You're responsible for tending to your own family. You're not, you can't be too overly obligated towards the parents of your students. Yeah, you can't make you can't make your hagwan your number one priority in your life because you know there's a natural order of priorities and and it's important not to get those mixed up. Kat, thanks so much for coming on here. Thanks for having me. It's good talking to you and talking. We a must lot. do it again. <laughs> I've, I've been saying this a lot lately. We must do it again. We didn't get to the hagwan stuff, but. I hope you can come back on here and we can talk about how you went from having this really awesome study room and more about this hagwan that you got to briefly mention here at the end, but more about this hagwan and all the obstacles and all the solutions that you, you have going on there. Yeah, we'll have to do that in round two. Well, round two, coming to you soon. Take care. Right, thanks again. See you.